Your thinking cannot come close to God's thoughts. For you to do the will of God, you must adjust your life to him, his purposes, and his ways. I remember a little over seven years ago when I was thinking through the possibilities of what God was going to have for my future, uh, where God was going to lead me, where God was going to take me. I remember getting a text message from a great friend of mine saying, hey, have you ever thought about planting a church in Mississippi? And I was serving Mississippi. I'm from Mississippi. And I thought, well, not really. And he said, well, Mississippi Baptists would like Mississippi boys to plant churches in the state of Mississippi. And I said, well, I'm interested in that. So we just talk through that. And through a series of events, my wife and I were connected with Wade. We were connected with Longview Point through Trey Clinney, who he and I used to ride to school together because as a poor seminary student, you try to save money on gas. Uh, and by the way, you risk your life riding with Trey Clinney if you've never done that. After three years of seminary, I can, I can attest to the grace of God and the mercy of God because I'm still alive. And so we were connected with Longview Point and through a series of open doors that God continually opened for us. We came on staff here at Longview Point August 1st of 2011 and East Point Church in January 8th of 2012 was planted. There were nine families that came on board with us that stepped out in faith to see and pray for God to do a great work in that community. We are six, uh, almost six and a half years old at this point in time today. Uh, over the last year, uh, much like Lee, we have experienced uh, our greatest year of growth that we've ever had over the last year. We baptized nine folks last year, which is more than we've ever baptized in a calendar year. Uh, we've, seen, uh, we've seen marriages put back together. We've seen God do an incredible work. And I want to thank you as we get ready to dive in to this text and this sermon. I want to thank you first for being a church that is willing to invest in young men like myself like Lawson Harlow, I would call Brian Tillman a young man, but he's not that anymore. But I do thank you for being a church that is willing to invest. Not just say, hey, we'll pray for you. But we'll actually put our money there as well. And we'll invest in you. William Jones said this. He said that the great use of a life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. And this morning, if you have your copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. I want to encourage you to open to Genesis chapter 12. The title of our sermon this morning is Life-Altering Faith. And what I want you to learn this morning is this. Life-altering faith not only gives us eternal life, but life-altering faith completely changes the trajectory of our earthly life as well. And my prayer this morning is that not only would you trust God with your soul, but that you would trust him with the details of your life. And ultimately, I pray this morning that we would leave here with Jesus as our greatest treasure. Before this text in Genesis chapter 12, we see several things. Let's set this passage in context. We see the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see an event that takes place that forever changed the landscape of human history when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and they fell. 
And now all of us, everyone who has ever been born after Adam and Eve, of course they weren't born, they were, they were created. So everybody who's ever been born was born with a sin nature. We inherited that from our father, Adam. Then we get to the progression of sin throughout Genesis 4 through 11. We see uh, mankind becoming more and more wicked on the face of the earth. We see God's judgment of that sin. Listen, the ark wasn't some random thing God put in place to preserve some animals. No, the ark was a symbol of God's judgment on mankind. They were becoming more and more and more wicked. And then they come out of that. And we're going to read today how God sovereignly selected a people for himself out of all the nations on the earth. And he entered into a covenant with Abraham and made incredible promises to Abraham. And so if you have found your place in God's word, Genesis chapter 12, and you are physically able, I'm going to ask that you would stand in honor of and in reverence to the reading of God's inerrant life-giving word. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you that we can enter into your presence. And Father, I pray that at this point in time, as we gather at your feet, as we look into your word, I pray that you would use it in our lives to challenge us and to convict us. God, to expose areas of sin that are hidden deep within our heart. Father, my prayer today is that as Jesus is lifted up through song and through message, I pray that you would draw people to yourself. God, I pray that as we look at an incredible radical call on a man's life, I pray that we would not just see that as another man and living in another time, but we would see a radical call on our life to be obedient, to go wherever you call us to go. Father, we love you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move in our midst. And Jesus, I pray that you would save. I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. I want to give you three lessons about faith from Abraham's life. And we're going to look at three different scenes. And so we're not going to be in one passage, but we will be in the book of Genesis looking at three different scenes that all revolve around one thing, and that is the promise of this son. And so the first lesson that we see about life-altering faith is this. Life-altering faith produces obedience even when you cannot see the end result. Go back to the text, look at verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. You see, God was calling Abram to leave the known for the unknown, to leave the familiar to go to that which he had never even seen. The call of God on Abram's life was a call to leave the comforts of home, the familiarity of his people, and the family that he loved so much in order to go to a place where God wanted him to be. This is what church planting is all about. 
When I think, let me tell you something. Lee and Christy Merck didn't think, hey, I got an idea. We should pack up our four daughters and we should move to Montana. Have you ever been to Montana in the wintertime? You don't do that unless God calls you out of the comfortable, out of what you know, into something that you've never seen before. You don't do that and take that leap of faith unless you believe that Jesus is worthy of being obedient to. Longview Point, I want to encourage you in this. You have, you're an incredible church. You are led, I believe that Wade Humphreys, and I say this with all seriousness, I believe he is the best preacher in the Mid-South. I think you can go to Memphis and you can include that. You have great facilities. You have incredible DNA. You have a great staff. However, please do not become so comfortable here that you're not willing to go if God calls you to step out in faith and to go. This is the challenge with the comfortable church south. It is easy to stay and to do and to attend, it is much more difficult to be the one that goes. You see, the American church is filled with comfortable Christians who have no idea what it looks like to sacrifice for the sake of, a, of the kingdom. We will attend, we will serve, we will give, but so often we will not go. We will do everything but put our yes on the table and be willing to go where God wants us to go. We'll do all these things until our comforts and our convenience is challenged. Mike Satura said this. He said the mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. And so God placed this radical call on Abram's life before he's even Abraham. And he called him to go to a country that he did not know. And then look at verse 4. It says, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram was obedient to that. For those of you who do not know me, I'm married, obviously. I've got five awesome children. Leighton is six. Um, if you, listen, when I talk about we're born with the sin nature, Leighton taught me that everybody's born a sinner. Okay, he confirmed what the scriptures had already, had already told me. Keller... My second one came along. Uh, we've got Grayson, we've got uh, Lola, and we have Dawson. Keller one day, uh, we were, it was a Friday. Friday is kind of, kind of an off day for me, uh, or at least some of the day Friday is. And so my wife goes to get groceries. She goes to do certain things on Fridays. And so I watch the kids. And we have baskets of toys at our house. We've got trucks. We've got trains. We've got dinosaurs. We've got blocks. We've got Lola's toys. We've got Dawson's toys. And they're all in their assigned baskets. And the boys know, you know, if mama's home, we, we only pull out a few things, and we put those things back, and we pull something else out. But when Austin leaves, I, I think they get together and they discuss these things because everything is dumped in the floor. It's like, it's like as soon as Austin walks out the door, they know they've got me beat. Okay, and so they just destroy the house. So Austin leaves, and my main goal is just to keep them alive. If I keep them alive, it's a win. And so... Austin usually calls, and she says, I'm leaving South Haven, or I'm leaving Olive Branch. And it's a very nice way of saying, the house better look just like it did when I left when I get home. 
And so I made up a song. I've got a terrible habit of taking old hymns and changing the lyrics in order to manipulate my children to do what ultimately I want them to do. And so stand up, stand up for Jesus is clean up, clean up for daddy. And my kids love to sing. I don't know, they don't get it from me. They must get it from Austin. And so my, we're cleaning up. I'm singing the song, clean up, clean up for Jesus or for daddy. And and Layton and Grayson are throwing things in, in baskets. Now, whether they're the right baskets, I don't know. But they're throwing toys in baskets. And my three-year-old is singing to the top of his lungs, clean up, clean up for daddy. And he's got a car running it on the wall back and forth. And I'm like, son, what are you doing? You're not doing anything. You're singing the song, but you're missing the whole point of the song. Church, hear me. We have a tendency to gather in worship. And sing passionately. And then walk out the doors and Monday through Saturday we live nominally. My three-year-old son represents us well in that he says one thing with his lips and he's doing something completely different with his life. Church Abram was obedient to God even when he did not fully understand what God was doing. Listen, going with God doesn't mean you have all the answers. And I think my favorite part Verse 1, when Abram pretty much is like, where are we going? And God says to the land that I'll show you. So God places this incredible call of Abraham to pack everything up and to leave. And when Abraham's like, okay, what's going on? Where are we heading? God's like, I'll show you when we get there. You're not going to see the end result. You see, God called Abram to leave everything he had ever known. And Abraham was obedient to that. It sounds simple, but today it is extremely rare. I'm reminded of the disciples in the book of Acts. These group of men who, if you were picking uh, uh, the best of the best, wouldn't have come close to making the list. And yet God worked through the obedience of common, untrained men who spent time with Jesus to radically turn the world upside down for the gospel. We sit here today because of what those men did back then. They were obedient to God. Abraham was obedient to God. If you look at verse 2, he says, And I will make a great nation of you, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Listen, if you think, hey, why has God blessed me? The answer to that question is simple, so that you will be a blessing to others. I remember uh, last year, I believe it was last summer, Derek Carr, who's a quarterback of the Oakland Raiders, signed the, at the time uh, the most expensive contract in NFL history. A uh, five-year deal worth $125 million. Okay, I wouldn't know what to do with any of that. And when they ask him, what are you going to do with the money? I'll never forget what he said. He said, I'll pay my tithe which first, which I've been doing since college, and I'll probably get my wife something nice. I bet he will. <laughs> he went on to say that the exciting thing for me is that this money is going to help a lot of people. I'm thankful to have it in our hands because it, not, it will not only help people in our country, but also in a lot of countries around the world. One of you, you know this as well as, as I'm about to say this, but God has blessed you so that the fame of Jesus and the renown of Jesus will reach the ends of the earth. I love walking in sometime in, in November and seeing the banner with the Lottie Moon goal in it. $250,000. I don't know, maybe it was $300,000 this year. I don't know what it was. It was a crazy number. And so I see that number, and I'm challenged by that number every year. 
And so what do I do? I go back to East Point. We start in October. We give from October through to January, and I encourage them every week, let's give to the global mission of God around the world because he's worthy of us doing that. Verse 3 says this, I will bless those who bless you, and, uh, <clears throat> and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Understand something here. The story of Abraham was not a story just to guide us on our faith journey. The story of Abraham is here to point us to a redeemer who offers redemption. We read that all nations of the earth will be blessed through him. That everybody is going to be blessed through this one man. Listen, that's only possible if a Savior comes to be the blessing for the world. The ESV Study Bible notes this. By focusing on how divine blessing will be mediated through Abram to all the families of the earth, it marks an important turning point within the book of Genesis. The repetition of the verb bless underscores the hope that through Abram, people everywhere may experience God's favor. Have been both national and international dimensions which are developed in the episodes that follow. Church, don't miss this. Abraham's obedience had global significance. When God calls a person to himself, he desires to use their life to impact others for the sake of the kingdom. God doesn't save you for you to simply come and attend a congregation. God saves you for you to come and ultimately be sent out. Now, that doesn't mean you leave this congregation necessarily, but what it does mean is that you live Monday through Sunday, every day of the week, with gospel intentionality. You live as a missionary. I don't know if you've looked around America lately, but it's no longer Mayberry. It's not. We can't live life as if people are going to come to us. God has called us to take the gospel to them. And if you're relying on your staff to be the people that are making disciples, that are going and reaching people with the gospel, then you are going to fail. However, if you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, daily crucify the flesh in order for the Spirit of God to work through you, live as someone who is sent, someone who is commissioned to go out by God to expand the kingdom, then you can do great things for the sake of the kingdom. Listen, they were obedient to God. One of my favorite seminary professors, Dr. John Mahoney, once said this, you live out your convictions, everything else in your life is just talk. Listen, if we can trust God with our soul, and I would venture to guess the majority of the people in this room have done that, then you can certainly trust him with the fine details of your life as well. The second thing we see about Abraham's faith here, not only did faith produce obedience in Abraham's life, but the second lesson we learn about faith from Abraham's life is this. Life-altering faith, trust in the promises of God, regardless of your circumstances. If you will, fast forward to chapter 15 with me. In chapters 13 and 14, we've got a story about Lot and Abram leaving and separating from each other. Lot is, goes, to, uh, goes to another city. He is captured in that city when, when war breaks out. Abram goes, takes a group of men, he goes and wins this battle, gets Lot back, has this encounter with Melchizedek, and then we pick back up in chapter 15 of verse 1 and 4. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. And that's significant because Abraham had just you know, denied taking all the spoils of that war, and God's saying, you don't need those spoils, what I'm going to give you is going to be greater. 
And by the way, Abram turned it down because he knew that God, he didn't, he didn't want anybody to question how he got where he was. He wanted to always be able to point back to the blessing of God. And then in verse 2, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. But Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He counted it to him as righteousness. See, Abraham in this story is growing frustrated because he was 75 in the first story when he was obedient to God, which, by the way, is a very good reminder. We have Abram at 75 being obedient to God. We have Josiah back in 2 Kings 22 at 8 years old being obedient to God, which pretty much tells me that all throughout our life we're to be obedient to God. There's no retirement. There's no age where we can live our own life and then pick up and begin to be obedient later. But Abraham begins to realize something here that we should constantly remember, and that is that God's timing might seem slow, but it's never late. His timing might seem slow, but it is never late. And God's plan, while it might be different than what we envisioned, is much better than what we envisioned. Listen, I thank God constantly that he didn't give me the life I dreamed of when I was 15, 16, and 17 years old. Because what he gave me was so much better. What he gave me was so much better. You see, this is the point in the story where God really begins to test Abram's faith. Because Abraham is old, his wife is old. And when I say old, I'm not talking about like East Point Church old. We have 54 families that attend East Point Church on a regular basis. We've got 43 covenant members. Out of our 43 covenant members, that's the only age demographic I've really done the breakdown of, we have 35 people that are 35 years old and younger. Okay, so, so when I say that Abraham is getting old, I'm not saying he's like 50 years old. Like, dude's on the backside of his life, old. And yet, he didn't have a children. He didn't have an heir. He points that, he points that out. He points the obvious out in verse 3. And again, God reminds him that we are to believe in the promises of God even when they seem unlikely, regardless of our circumstances and regardless of what's going on around us. I've been preaching through the book of James on Sunday mornings at East Point for the last two, three months, maybe something like that. And in chapter one, the thing that just blew my mind over and over and over again, all throughout chapter one is this. James is writing to a group of people that have been dispersed as a result of persecution. So Stephen has been stoned to death. The church in Jerusalem fled and so James is writing to these people whose lives have been uprooted as a result of their faith in Jesus. And he still tells them all throughout the book, he still tells them to be obedient. He still tells them to count it joy in the midst of their circumstances. To be obedient and to follow after Christ. Listen, we live in a me-first, self-absorbed society that focuses on us constantly. And I got news for you. The gospel is not about you, neither is the church. It's all about Jesus. And so we have a tendency to allow our circumstances to affect how we live our life. 
And what God is telling Abraham here is, listen, you don't worry about the details. You be obedient and you trust me. So regardless of Abraham's circumstances, he believed God. And I love this in in, in verse 6. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed and God made him righteous. That is the great exchange where we give to God our filthy rags, our no good works, and he gives us the righteousness of Jesus himself. Understand something here. Abraham did not make himself righteous. Abraham believed in the promises of God, and God made him righteous. Salvation is similar to that today, where we call upon Jesus through faith and repentance, and God makes us born again. The rest of chapter 15, God solidifies a unique covenant with Abraham. A unique covenant that, I, if you read the details of it, is incredible. Then we begin to read in chapter 16, Abraham has already lied about Sarah once being his sister. He lies about, uh, about her being his sister again. Uh, Sarah gets a little anxious, so she gives Abraham Hagar. And we learn about Abraham's faith. We read these big things about his faith, but understand something. He had failures every step along the way as well. His wife literally gave him another woman to have an heir. They went, and Abraham was willing to to let Abimelech take his wife as his own wife. So they had shortcomings, and they had failures all along the way. And so they doubted the promises of God. They allowed their circumstances sometimes to overcome them. But they always went back to the promise that God was going to use them to bless all the nations of the earth. So not only did faith produce obedience in Abraham's life, and not only did faith trust in the promises of God, but the third and final lesson that we learn about Abraham's faith is this. Life-altering faith focuses on the gift giver, not the gift. If you would turn to Genesis chapter 22 with me. In chapter 21, God gave Abraham and Sarah their son Isaac. When Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. But in chapter 22, we begin to see a turn in this story. It says this in verse 1. After these things, after God had fulfilled this promise, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on, the, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Listen, God was testing Abraham's faith once again to see if he trusted him again. God highlights in this chapter the test of Abraham's faith and his obedience that followed that test. Abraham gets up. He gets everything ready. I can imagine the night before, Abraham probably didn't sleep at all, thinking he's going to offer his only son or his firstborn son there on the altar. And then we look at verses 3 through 5, and we see him saddling the donkey, getting his servants, 
preparing for the sacrifice. And Abraham tells his servant something incredible in verse 5. Look with me. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You see, Abraham was not confident that God was going to take back his request. He was confident in the promise that God had made him back in chapter 12. He was confident that God was going to use Isaac to bless all the nations of the earth. One commentator writer said this, The nature of the event as a challenge to Abraham's faith looks beyond the sacrifice to a larger question of the promise. Now look at verse 6 with me. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offerings and he laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they both went together. Church, listen. Isaac is not only going to be offered as a a sacrifice, he's carrying the wood to the place where the altar is going to be built. Similarly, Jesus, when he took the cross, walked up a hill, and Isaac, in a lot of ways, pictures for us what Jesus has already done on our behalf. And then if you look at verse 7 and 8, and Isaac said to his father, listen, I can, when I read something, I visualize being there. When Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Can you imagine what Abraham is feeling in that moment. And I love how he responds. After the most chilling question in all of Scripture, he responds by saying this, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both, so they went, both of them together. Verse 9, Isaac, and by the way, we have a picture of Isaac. We think Isaac is some six, seven, eight-year-old little boy that Abraham bounds up and lays on the altar. Reality is Isaac is probably stronger and bigger and, and, and physically in better shape than his father at this point in time. And so he's willingly laying down his life. It's a vivid image of this, this, this sacrifice that Jesus did for us and when he gave his life for us. And then in verse 10... Then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. We read that and we think, well, that's pretty graphic for church. But understand something, the cross was graphic. And so the picture is there. And in this moment, Abraham is doing this. Abraham is choosing the gift giver above the gift. He is choosing to praise God, who's the giver of all things, more than he is the thing that God had given him. Abraham loved God enough to give back to him the thing he loved most in his life, namely his son. He didn't withhold that from him. Listen, you can go to churches even in DeSoto County, uh, in the Memphis area, and you can be told this. You can be told that if you will come to faith in Jesus, that God will give you all the desires of your heart. That if you will come to faith in Jesus, God will give you blessings and God will provide for you everything you've ever wanted. And what, the, what makes the prosperity gospel so dangerous today is, is that it elevates the gift above the giver. Listen, they may give you some form of idolatry, but that's not Christianity. It's not Christianity. 
Church, hear me. Listen, I, I, for years I've heard preachers at youth camps and different things, revivals, say that if you'll come to faith in Jesus, you'll get to go to heaven. Or if you'll come to faith in Jesus, God will give you purpose in this life. Or my favorite, if you'll come to Jesus, you'll get to see all the loved ones that have died before you and spend eternity with them. And what they do is they make Jesus a means to an end. You come to Jesus and you'll get this and you'll get that. Church, hear me. When you come to Jesus, you get God. What makes heaven so desirable is not the fact that we've got loved ones that have gone on before us. It's the fact that Jesus himself, our greatest treasure, will be there. All those other things are byproducts of salvation. Does God give you purpose? Absolutely, he gives you purpose. Does God give you eternity in a glorious place? Absolutely, he does. But what makes that place so glorious is the fact that it's glo his glory is what, is what gives it light. Now look at verse 12 and 13 with me. It's Abraham's choosing the gift giver over the gift. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or anything, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. We read about substitutionary atonement. Church, you're saved the same way today as they were saved in the Old Testament through looking back at the cross, believing that Jesus was enough, that his, as he substituted himself for you on the cross. And this substitute came in place, and Abraham offered it as well. And verse, then verse 14 says, So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said on this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I have a few points of application, and we'll close out. Number one, I want to encourage you to follow Jesus regardless of the personal cost. That sounds so simple, right? Follow Jesus regardless of the personal cost. But what if the next church planter that comes through the doors of Longview Point Baptist Church, who's planting a church in somewhere in DeSoto County, but even, even, even different than that, maybe he's planting a church somewhere five or six states over. What if God calls you to pack up your family and to go with him? Is your yes on the table for that? Have you given God a blank check and said, you fill this out and you send me wherever you want me to go? Or have you gotten used to being comfortable where you are? I love what William Carey once said. He said, we are to attempt, to attempt great things for God and we are to expect great things from God. Number two, I want to encourage you to believe in the promises of God regardless of your circumstances. A few years back, a friend of mine from, from my high school days from, uh, came, started coming to church randomly. And I thought, why is this dude coming to church? He had spent two terms in Iraq. I had shared the gospel with him before he had gone the both times. I'll never forget taking him to Brick Oven before a second tour in Iraq, sitting down with him, beginning to share the gospel with him. And he told me, if you're going to tell me about Jesus, you're wasting your time. But we had a girl at church. And he liked her. He liked her a lot. Enough where he would come to church to see her. And on December of 2012, the last Sunday of the year, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's, 
The invitation was given, and he came down the aisle and gave his life to Jesus. But within a year of that, his wife was diagnosed with cancer. And shortly after they were married for a full calendar year, she was laying on her deathbed and ultimately died. I will never forget being there with the family and her brother telling a new Christian, for the most part, telling him that he believes that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. As his sister was dying in the hospital, church, hear me. God, even though we may be in difficult circumstances, still calls us to place our attention on him and to trust that he works those things out for our good and ultimately his glory. The third and final thing I want to encourage you to do is treasure the gift giver more than the gifts, regardless of what the gifts are. The greatest gift God has ever given me in this life outside of salvation is my wife but I recognize that that came from him. And if I don't treasure Jesus above her, then I'll never be able to love her the way I ought to. Church, we are to treasure the gift giver more than the gifts themselves. That is the message of the gospel. For Christ died, 1 Peter 3.18, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God. That he might reconcile this relationship that has been fractured and broken as a result of sin. And so my question to you this morning is this. Is God your greatest treasure? Is God the source of your joy? And do you love the gift giver more than the life itself? If you're an unbeliever here today, I want you to know this. I want you to know that Jesus came, lived a sinless, perfect life because you're a sinner. And that through Jesus, you can have life everlasting. And the invitation is for you to come and to give your life to a God who left heaven and gave his life for you. But if you're a believer here, and you've gotten comfortable, and you are, you are stagnant in your walk with Jesus, remember this, you cannot stay where you are and go with God. And so the invitation is for you to repent, to put your yes on the table. You can do that in your seat. You can come do that at the altar. But I encourage you, regardless of who you are, regardless of how old you are, to put your yes on the table, to give God a blank check and say, send me wherever you want me to go. Spend my life however you want to spend it. Hey, I got something a little more personal than that. Spend my money however you want to spend it. Because you've been blessed to be a blessing to others.